You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. So today on the show, I want to welcome Constanza Eliana Chinea. She is the creator of Embody Inclusivity. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you. I would love to just hear about you and your journey and and what you do and what brought you to this point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my story is, you know, starts off in Puerto Rico, actually. My parents met at an Ivy League uh, university in New York. And they were both there on a POC scholarship and they met in Ithaca where I was born. And then shortly after I was born, they moved back to Puerto Rico to raise me. And that's where I lived for the first seven to eight years of my life. So English is my second language. I, um, you know, I loved my island. I loved my country. It was an amazing place to grow up and live in paradise. And I have a lot of memories of being there and living there. And then, you know, economic opportunity came up for my dad in the States. And when I was about seven or eight, he moved the entire family to Illinois. So I went from living in paradise <laughs> to living in the Midwest in a culture I didn't understand and a language that I didn't know. And so that's really what started this uh, identity crisis almost of, you know, being an immigrant, understanding what it means to be a woman of color or a child of color, and um, being someone who had to assimilate to um, a different culture and a different language and uh, to really survive. So I spent, you know, my younger years really learning quickly how to survive in in the U.S. as a brown child. And um, I did all the typical assimilation tactics. I took the accent out of my language. I made sure that I spoke very clearly um, so that I wasn't made fun of when I was a kid, even though the popular kids made fun of my hair. I have really curly hair um, and, Mm -hmm. you know, I have dark skin. I have brown skin. So they would always make fun of me for having a quote unquote tan. Um, And so I did everything that I could within my physical appearance and within my speech so that I could kind of reduce that harm that was being caused onto me. So assimilation, again, looked like, um, you know, changing the the accent that I had and making sure I spoke very eloquently and clearly so I sounded intelligent, you know, making sure that I stopped eating my Puerto Rican food for lunch at school and started eating like Lunchables and you know, the cafeteria food and stuff like that. So it was very much like a typical brown child, immigrant child, really trying to conform and fit in to a new culture. So I did that for a really long time. And of course, this created some racial trauma. And and for the last couple of years, I have been working really directly on decolonizing um, myself, um, healing a lot of that racial trauma that I experienced. Um, and have really worked on reclaiming myself and my identity and who I am 
as both a Puerto Rican woman and an American woman because I have lived in the U.S. since I was seven years old up to now. I'm in my 30s. I'm, I'll be turning 32 this year or sorry, 33 okay. this year. So it's been it's been a long time. And so, you know, I do consider myself American, but first and foremost, Puerto Rican. And there's a whole like political side to that, that I also, you know, within, you know, Puerto Rican and American politics that I also educate people on now, but yeah. it's been, you know, at least the last five years of me trying to do decolonization work, reclaiming my, my name, uh, reclaiming my, my identity and feeling really good in my skin. And every day is, you know, I'm learning something new about myself and every day is a little bit of a, a challenge and a little bit of a struggle, but I do feel much more comfortable in the skin that I walk in now. Now your bio says that you're a certified yoga instructor and you've had yeah. a total of 10 years experience in the industry and over 300 hours of training in yoga, trauma, and anti-racism. And that you began teaching and consulting after noticing a need for diversity and representation in the industry. So what has that journey been like? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been, it's been a journey. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I've been a teacher for seven years and I've been in the industry for uh, a culmination of 10. So what that means okay. is that when I started in the industry, I was actually volunteering for studios, um, which is, you know, technically an employee, but you don't get paid. Um, mm -hmm. and that's what kind of started me actually being able to afford taking classes because the areas I've always lived in cities and the areas where the studios were located were very affluent and I couldn't afford to actually take yoga. And right. I was kind of tired of doing, you know, watching videos at home. I've, I wanted a more community aspect to it and I wanted to learn from a teacher. So um, yeah, so I started volunteering and then I became employed, uh, an employee at studios and then I became a teacher a couple of years later. So it's been a culmination of like working directly behind the scenes, in the scenes, work with teachers, working with um, studio owners, and then, you know, being a teacher is a whole other thing as well. So yeah, I started uh, practicing yoga, like I mentioned at home, I was watching some videos, the physical aspect of it um, came really, I, I have to be honest, it came easily to me because I was a dancer for so long. Um, okay. so I just enjoyed the movement, um, but mm -hmm. I wanted to go deeper into the philosophy. And so I, I started going into studios, volunteering at studios so I could get the free classes and really fell in love with the physical and the emotional and the mindset work, um, that mm -hmm. comes with merging the philosophy with the movement. So I really wasn't going to studios to have, you know, some sort of physical goal. It really was an emotional goal. I wanted to transform my mindset. I wanted to heal from, you know, not just the racial trauma, but I was also drinking a lot. I was heavily drinking on a weekly basis. Um, mm -hmm. And I wanted to get out of that. And I didn't feel like I could do it by myself, obviously. So that's really what led me into uh, yoga. And then when I became, uh, when I decided to become a teacher is because I saw that all my teachers were white. Um, a lot right. of the students that I was practicing with were white and no mm -hmm. one really looked like me. Um, and I wanted to be a part of something that I loved, but I also wanted to feel like someone like me could feel represented and be guided by someone who understood you know, 
them and their life and, and their struggles. So, um, yeah, I decided to become a teacher. I went through a Shivananda yoga training, which is a very traditional, very classical form of yoga. Um, they mostly focus on philosophy, which is my, um, you know, I don't want to say my expertise because it's a lifelong study and practice, but that's really what I focus on is, yes, we do the asana um, because that's part of it. It's one eighth of the practice, but I want to focus on more the liberation aspect of it. The, the mindset, the philosophy behind yoga is really important to me and that's how I teach. So the last seven years of me teaching really opened my eyes up to just how badly needed uh, diversity and inclusion actually are in yoga spaces. Um, I would say, at least from my experience, I haven't necessarily seen a full on study on this. So it's yeah. not like statistical. But from my experience, about 95% of yoga studios are owned by white women. And that's not, uh, I don't think that's a mis, uh, like by, by chance. It's because a certain demographic does have access to funding in order to be able to open up studios um, that otherwise wouldn't be accessible to someone like me who has lived almost their entire life in poverty. Um, you know, coming up with a million dollars to open up a yoga studio is nearly impossible. So it's not by accident that a certain demographic is more affluent and has more access to funding than mm -hmm. someone who, who wouldn't otherwise um, have that privilege and that access. So, um, yeah, I noticed that because the studio owners were predominantly white and they were opening up studios in predominantly affluent communities, then that's who their clientele was and that's who mm -hmm. they would speak to and that's who they hung out with. And so that's who showed up. And that to me, um, showed that there's a real necessity for having an impact based business that goes beyond just the affluent communities healing themselves surrounded by their own. It's, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to show that, yes, you can have access and, and have privilege and have a positive impact that doesn't really center you as like the leader or you as the main person like doing this for the community, but it really centers the community itself. Um, and it through a social justice lens. So I didn't really know what that was going to look like. So it's been, um, it's been a while of me trying to figure out how I can not only train myself and, and get educated myself so that I can be of more service to my students, but how can I also provide a level of education and mindset work to affluent, privileged white communities so that they can start being more inclusive in the spaces that they are walking into and holding space in. So that's really like some of the work that I've been um, diving deep into for the last year. Okay. So what does that look like and how does that work in terms of uh, teaching and consulting in these predominantly white spaces in doing that in a way that, um, yeah, that decenters whiteness, mm -hmm. that, centers the experience of women of color. How on earth is that going? <laughs> right? Yeah, it's a it's a challenge, I will say. It's definitely a challenge. Yeah. The way that I've really managed it 
is by doing collaborations with other women of color who are doing similar work or wanting to do similar work. Okay. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm huge on community and the community that I know and love and has always supported me are my own, are women of color, uh, black women, brown women, Latina women. And so that's who I collaborate and that's who I really center in my work. So that in that aspect, it's been really great because I'm not, I don't feel so alone in doing this, especially when it gets really challenging when, you know, people don't want you in their space anymore, or you say something that triggers them in, uh, in a way that makes them not want to do the work. And mm -hmm. so having a support system of women of color doing this, the same work is really important to me. And that's kind of what keeps me going. Because there are days when I, I want to stop and quit altogether. Oh, I'm sure. Um, yeah. And that's yeah. just real. That's honest. Like, yeah. you know, anybody, anybody doing this work, it's going to be challenging. And mm -hmm. um, so I have a lot of tools that I, I utilize. I have my own spiritual practices outside of yoga that come from my, my own ancestry and my own background that really helped me as well. So there's that. And then what it looks like as far as actually doing the work with white or white passing folk is having them understand what the inner work is and then going into action. Because I think a lot of people get stuck in the guilt and the shame and they don't know how to have the conversation or they do have the conversation, but they don't have the language to be able to speak to it clearly. Or they have the conversation, but they show up in a problematic way in the conversation. And then that stops the growth as well. So understanding where the shame and the guilt and the fear around having a race and bias conversation come from um, is really important. And so I predominantly work with white yoga teachers, studio owners, spiritual entrepreneurs, people that have spiritual based practices, because I think it's important to not forget that your spiritual practice applies to race and bias as well. It's not like in a side, it's right. really like it's it's a whole thing. It, it, it involves social justice as well. And what I noticed in the seven years of teaching is that mostly none of the yoga teachers that I came across that were white were having conversations around social justice or politics or race and bias because mm -hmm. they wanted that to be its own separate thing. They wanted their right. students to like, if that's what you want to do on the side, that's perfectly fine, but don't bring it into the yoga studio. We can't talk mm -hmm. about it here. Social justice is a negative thing or race and bias is like a negative uh, conversation and we want to be high vibe and we only want to be positive. So we're not going to touch it. Um, and that's dangerous. Uh, it's yeah. dangerous on multiple levels, but I think we definitely saw how dangerous that became in the 2016 election because white women were the ones that predominantly voted for Donald Trump. And mm -hmm. then a lot of the Democratic white women that didn't feel like voting for Hillary just stayed home. And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that a lot of white people are going and taking yoga classes on a regular basis and politics and social justice, race and bias, even sustainability, environmentalism, none of that is being talked about in sacred spaces. But these are sacred things that we need to discuss. And they're real. They're happening in the real world. And if you're only walking into a yoga space to get away from the real world, then you're doing your practice a disservice. You're actually using your practice as a means to spiritually bypass rather than as a means towards liberation. 
And yes, yes. That's and we see what spiritual bypass does. It stops people from doing the work and it stops them from taking the right action that will lead us all towards liberation. Especially the the you know, um having allies and accomplices for brown and black and indigenous people. Um so that is definitely one thing that I touch on in my work is that yes. We want to practice spiritual practices like yoga and other practices as a means to heal ourselves. But that doesn't mean that we have to turn a blind eye towards social justice, environmentalism, or race and bias. That actually means we have to go through it and deal with right. it and the discomfort of it um, so that we can start to liberate not only ourselves, but the, the people who are affected by all of these things. Because if you live in a fantasy, then that's not advancing humanity. And it's not even, even advancing the individual. All it's doing is it's making you delusional. So, um, right. yeah, so that's kind of what I, I like to touch on is, you know, we're, if we're practicing philosophy and we're practicing movement-based meditation, then we need to practice that in all aspects of our lives, not just at the yoga studio. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm not part of the yoga community, so I can't speak really specifically on these things. But it occurs to me that when you are practicing something that is focused on healing, like you okay. said, how have we gotten to this point where we believe that the way to healing and the path to healing is over and around the things that are causing us disease, right? right. And so it makes complete sense to me that within this community, you would want to go through these things. Do you think that there's a brand of, or do you think that yoga has been so taken over by, you know, a variety of different people uh, and, and actually been stripped of its spiritual practice and that perhaps mm -hmm. in that process has also created like this form of yoga that's just really like exercise? Yeah, absolutely. It's a big topic in the community and it has been for a long time. Um, I think, you know, what really draws people into the practice is the fact that if you practice consistently, um, if you practice the physical aspect of it consistently, then you will get flexible and strong. And it does help with recovery if you're an athlete. So all of these things are true. That really does happen. Mm -hmm. But the yoga practice in itself is not strictly asana. It's not strictly the physical. So mm -hmm. what, what has happened um, is that yoga has and asana has become so popular that affluent white communities want these spaces, you know, want yoga studios to open up in their neighborhoods and their environment. They want to practice the physical so much mm -hmm. so that a lot of the studio, studio owners that I was meeting didn't even practice yoga. They just thought yeah. it was a good business move. And yeah. so when you open up a space with that intent and that energy behind it, then that's what you're going to get. And yeah. so that's why we see so many studios that are very much centered around the physical, very centered around the body. Um, and that actually deeply goes against the spiritual practice of it because mm -hmm. what you're supposed to, uh, the, the whole philosophy behind yoga is dismantling the ego. And so if you're completely attached to the way that you physically look and the way that you physically feel, 
then that's your ego attaching itself to a, a vision of yourself or like looking good to other people or even looking good in a bikini or whatever or being more physically fit than the next person right like having this sense right. of and uh, you know uh entitlement almost like oh i'm more phys uh, physically fit than you are or i'm more flexible than you are look at all the great things that i can do right i've practiced for five years and i can do the splits right like <laughs> right right this it's this attachment to the self. But really mm -hmm. what the yoga practice is all about is detachment from the ego. It's keeping the ego in check. And when people don't practice it in that way, then that's when it becomes this capitalistic, colonized, um, physical thing. Um, and again, that's not through anyone's, uh, it, it, that's not by accident. It's, it right. has everything to do with this colonization mindset of, hey, we like this thing, you know, we like the physical thing that's coming from, you know, this uh, brown country from India, but we don't want to touch the spiritual stuff because it really doesn't go with our culture. It really doesn't vibe with us or like that mm -hmm. Sanskrit stuff. Like, I don't even understand it. So I'm going to take all of that out and I'm going to open up a studio in an affluent community devoid of all the spiritual stuff. Um, because it's trendy, it'll make me money, and that's what I'm going to focus on. And that's what I saw. I was walking into spaces, and I'm sure many of your listeners have walked into spaces where that's been the case. Like, you know, right. we have a lot of hot yoga studios now where philosophy is no way in any shape or form part of uh, the teaching that the teachers give. Um, mm -hmm. We have a lot of studios that really focus in, in entire companies that are devoted to um, making you look good with the leggings and the sports bras right. and, the, and the style of it, right? And right. these are companies that are have a bottom line and they want you to feel like if you get these leggings and if you look good in the yoga class and if you just practice, you know, for the next five years, you are going to be a better person than the next person than the next person because sure. you look better than they do. And it's all yeah. ego in the mm -hmm. yoga community. We have two sets of, of people. We have the people who only focus on the asana and don't know anything about the spiritual side of it, where they might know a little bit, but not much. And then there's the other side of it where they feel like they know a lot about the spirituality, a lot about the physical, um, a lot about positive vibes, high vibes, you know, energy, right. manifestation. Um, and, you know, they also practice asana. So because it's part of it. Right. So there's those two worlds. They may on paper seem different, but they're actually very much the same. It's mm -hmm. all rooted in the same mentality of being attached to the ego. So what I do is I work with people who are open enough. So I don't try to force anybody right. to, to come into this conversation, although I think it is necessary for, for you know people who do have some sort of discomfort around this to really explore that. Yeah. But what I do is I work with people who are in the yoga industry in general. Spiritual entrepreneurs, great. If you are an asana junkie, great. If you're open enough to having this conversation and getting educated around it, I'll teach you the philosophy aspect that you may not know about that awesome. has everything to do with yoga and, and what you're practicing. Because again, yoga comes from an ancient practice. And so even if you're only practicing the physical part of yoga, you're still practicing yoga. So you want to make sure that you understand what that actually means past mm -hmm. the 
past the physical. And even if you think you know what that means, you may not actually, right? Like you still have to be open enough and humble enough to learn something that may not have been taught to you or understand that the person who taught it to you, especially if they were a white affluent woman, may have learned their practice from another white affluent woman who learned their practice from another white affluent woman, right? Like it, it gets transmuted down from their perspective rather than from a, a, a perspective of actual philosophy. And there's so much to learn around yoga. I mean, in the past, yogis used to practice with their teachers, swamis, gurus, whatever you want to call it, for at least 12 years before they even started teaching. So wow. this is a lifelong practice and no one person is going to be an expert in it. And there are, you know, several lineages. There's not just one way, a right way to practice yoga. There are several lineages with, you know, lifetimes of information. Um, so it's, it's, there's a lot to learn. So it's, um, so I work with anyone, anyone who is considers themselves to be, uh, into growth, spiritual growth, personal growth. That's who I work with. So do you feel like the yoga world is opening up and expanding to these concepts of, uh, social justice? I, I, it feels like yes and no. <laughs> um, yeah, it feels like yes, there is a group that is very much willing to expand and, and grow and evolve in this direction. Mm -hmm. And then there are the people who it feels like they might never be interested in that. They're very comfortable with, you know, being ignorant on these issues. And I don't mean ignorant in a negative way. I just mean like not educated. Right. Um, on these issues. And so it feels some days like like it's a struggle to get people even to open up to having the conversation. And then there's other days where I feel like, wow, I literally had five conversations in one day where people were very open to it. It feels almost like the politics that we're in. Right. And it, and I and again, that's not an accident either. It's, you know, mm -hmm. we live in the real world and we're affected by by the energy of this world um, culturally and globally. And so I feel like in the United States right now, we are experiencing a huge political shift in understanding and we have to transform our mindset. Otherwise we see where we're headed and it's not in a good direction. And so I feel like the people who are starting to come to terms with that and are understanding that the dangers of that are the ones who are open enough to even have the conversation around yoga, merging yoga and social justice together. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the people who are like completely wanting to bypass it altogether. And, you know, maybe it'll take them being personally affected in a couple of years in order for them to come into this work. Um, but what I'm really focused on is how can I stay rooted in my mission to mm -hmm. creating inclusive spaces for people of color, uh, specifically women of color, and really stay true to that because my entire goal, and I think you mentioned this earlier with decentering whiteness, is my entire goal is to make sure that spaces look much more diverse than they currently do and that teachers are using inclusive language beyond race so that students can actually come and heal in these spaces rather than be harmed in these spaces.
Do you see teachers who are desiring to learn this, who who have recognized and realized, like, I have this space where I want people to be able to come and heal, and I can't provide them with that because I don't even understand what people are talking about or why this is an issue. Do you have people who are open to that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I would like to see more people be interested in it, but Yes, there are definitely people who come to me on a regular basis and, you know, ask me about my programs, ask me about my workshops, ask me about um, coming into their their yoga studios and their spaces. I currently have a group coaching program that's starting here really soon um, where I have a small group of people who are all yoga teachers who are interested in diving deeper into the work and the and the coaching program is actually an introduction to doing the work. So it kind of gets the conversation started, it gets the education started, and then if they want to move deeper into that, they can. Um, So yes, there are definitely people who are interested in doing this work. One very interesting thing that I'm noticing is that there are yoga teachers that are following specific teachers that are not POC. So meaning they're following white teachers that Mm -hmm. have decided to talk about social justice and they are the ones that are getting a lot of the attention. And I think that really goes to show the amount of racial bias that comes into play, even when we're talking about race and bias. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell Um, me about that. What's going on there? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, so I want to make it clear to anybody that follows me or listens to any, um, anything that I say is that I don't think it's a bad thing to have the conversation with your community. I think it needs to be had. You need to decompress. You need to talk to your family members, especially the, the ones who say, you know, racist, problematic things. Um, you need to be having these conversations within your community where it starts to get tricky and problematic even is when White teachers center social justice, but they also center themselves doing and talking about social justice. Okay. So So I want you to say it one more time for people (laughs) who are listening. Yeah. No, really. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So where it becomes problematic is when you are talking about race and bias, but you center yourself in doing the work of race and bias. So what that looks like is, um, you know, having having a workshop that costs $35 where you're talking about race, bias, social justice, environmental stuff, like all of that. You're charging for doing that work and it's you teaching it as the white expert without having any person of color leading or guiding the conversation and making sure that it's moving in the right direction or a non-problematic direction. Um, So the reason that I say that is problematic is because one, it upholds white supremacy. White supremacy says that only white people are qualified experts, um, leaders, or have the capacity to teach on any certain thing or to lead you in any, any certain direction. That is white supremacy. It's saying that only white people, only white bodies, only white passing folk are able to be successful or are able to lead and guide. And those are the only people that are qualified to do so. So that's white supremacy in general. It's way beyond the KKK. It's like literally the air that we breathe. Right. Two, it's using capitalism as a way, especially, you know, since you're, you might be charging for the class. 
it's using capitalism and colonialism in sacred spaces. And that is highly problematic. So if you're a white person and maybe you took one course or three courses or 10 courses around anti-racism, and now you feel like, yes, I want to have this conversation in my community, but I want to be the leader. I want to be the coach and I want to get charged for it and paid for it because I want to be paid my worth. Right. So that is a colonial and capitalist mindset that really needs to be looked at and checked because what happens is people who are not used to doing this work or haven't even started are looking at two posters. They're looking at a poster of me, a brown Latina brown uh, woman leading this work, leading this workshop. And then they're looking at a poster of a white affluent woman also leading this work. Who are you going to feel more comfortable with if you haven't checked your biases yet? You're going to go with the white woman. Right. We're both charging for our workshop, but who is getting the access and the privilege and the money? It's going to be the white woman. And that perpetuates white supremacy even more. It's problematic. Um, so what I've been seeing in the industry is that people are, are running to um, people who have this sort of um, appearance of looking like the expert, right? Like looking like they want to help the community using language around, you know, white supremacy and using language around decolonization, but they're white. And so they're asking what essentially what they're stepping into is come and pay for my course and my teaching because I'm white. I can relate to you and I'm the expert in this and <laughs> I am the one that's going to be able to save you from, you know, causing harm to people of color, even though I'm not inviting any person of color to come and lead this work with me or, you know, to, to be the actual leader in this. Um, so that's what I've been seeing in the yoga community. It's highly problematic. I think people are starting to have a conversation around that. I've, especially the, the teachers that come to me, the, the yoga teachers that come to me have said, I feel like it's important to ha to be taught this work by a person of color. And I don't think we we have really been hearing people say that, um, right. you know, until after the 2016 election, people mm -hmm. were starting to 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 come to terms with that, um, because really the leaders, at least in the yoga community, are white and are affluent. Well, and this is something that I'm passionate about. And you and I have talked before, you know, this recording. Um, but like for me, stepping into this work as a white woman, I had to be very clear with people that one, I am not an educator and I am not a teacher. I'm leading by example, going through the process of having conversations and dissecting and just being where I am as the person that I am. But I will never monetize this space or anything to do with anti-racism work. And I find it very problematic for all of the reasons that you mentioned. One, I don't really know what it's like to deal with racism. I will exactly. never deal with racism, right? And and so how on earth would I be able to speak as an expert in that fashion? And and you said that, you know, these people have probably taken, you know, maybe three or five or 10 classes. I'm curious if they've taken any, because I really feel like <laughs> if you have an awareness, and I'm I'm not trying to, like, bash anybody, right? Like, I don't want people right. who are listening and going, oh my gosh, I... 
I'm doing this to, to feel ashamed, but mm -hmm. I do want you to hear this and change things. Right. Yes. You know, it's like I was asked, for example, to go and speak at an event and share my story. And I was like, well, you know, here's the thing. If I'm taking the place of a woman of color who can come in and share her story, I don't want to do it, you know? Right. And, and so it's really good to hear, you know, the mechanics in your experience and you walking us through that. Like, this is what happens when white women are leading this and teaching this and charging for this. And, mm -hmm. and that's really something that, that I'm very vocal about. I've talked to other, you know, white people who, who do anti-racism stuff. And I've been very like clear with that. Like, this is what I believe. And a couple of the people, you know, I could tell they were like, oh shit, you know, like mm -hmm. I, I, I charge for what I'm doing, you know, and I'm just kind of like, right. yeah, no, 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 no. So I really appreciate you speaking to this because here we have a very good example. Right. And mm -hmm. so, so what would you say to maybe white women who are a little bit aware and they want to mm -hmm. do something? but they don't want to cause harm to women of color. And so they think that yeah. they're putting themselves in a space with a white woman in a way to prevent causing harm, right? What mm -hmm. would you say to them? Yeah, um, yeah, all really great points. Um, and the analogy that I like to use is you can, you can take, it's the equivalent of, you know, being a white woman, um, or white person or white passing person for that matter, teaching an anti-racism course and charging for it, capitalizing off of it is the same as someone teaching a college PhD course on honey, all the benefits of honey, the ingredients of honey, the history of honey, but they've never tasted honey. They don't have the experience of actually knowing what it tastes like, what it feels like, what it, the experience of it, mm -hmm. it's the same thing. So if you've never experienced racism, you are not really that qualified to be able to teach no matter how many degrees you have or certifications or anything like that, because you've never experienced it. So you mm -hmm. really, it, it, there's a difference. There's a big, big, big difference. And if you have been on the receiving end of privilege and access and and all of these things, then it's going to be very hard for you to even relate. Um, you're going to miss a lot of things. There's going to be a lot of problematic behavior that is presented to you that you're going to completely miss and not be able to speak to because you, you don't have the lived experience of it. So there's that. And as far as, you know, white women or white people um, having this you know, education, or at least this knowledge, and then, you know, not wanting to cause harm, I think it's important to understand, and this isn't, again, to build more on the shame or the guilt, but it's important to understand that it's really not possible to not cause harm, but you can cause less harm. Right. So what I mean by that is, you know, taking it, you know, outside of race, we human beings on this planet, we are constantly causing harm to this planet. You know, if we left this planet, if we didn't exist anymore, like if we went extinct, this planet would thrive just fine. It actually would do even better without humans, right? Because it's an ecosystem and it thrives and evolves by itself. But because we are here and because we have evolved mentally to create things and destroy things and, you know, make things and be creative with things, we are constantly causing harm when we build a house on land. We are destroying the soil. We are destroying the land so that we can have shelter for ourselves. So 
it's not to make us feel more shameful, but it's to understand that there are different ways of existing by causing less harm to ourselves and to other people. So what, what it, that looks like as far as like race and bias goes is making sure that you're not centering yourself in the conversation. If somebody wants to have a racialized conversation or you feel like someone is being problematic and you wanna educate them, educate them, but know that you are more than capable of providing uh, resources that are POC led or, um, or created that that person that you're speaking to can actually go to and get the real education that they need. You don't have to be the leader. In fact, we would prefer you not to be the leader and the expert. We want you to do the work and include your own community to do the work without centering yourself. There's this term, and I'm sure you've talked about it on your podcast, but there's this term of being performative. One of the big things I see in the yoga community is that everyone thinks they're an expert around race and bias, and they want to lead courses, and they want to talk, have constant conversations, and they want to you know, um, they want to make comments and they want to go to a Black Lives Matter rally. And it's very, very performative. They just want to be right. seen right. doing the work rather than ha um, having POC leaders continuing to educate them or providing resources by a black or brown woman or indigenous woman doing anti-racism work or continuing their education even. One course is not enough. This is lifetime unpacking. Right. This is gonna be, you know, lifetime of decolonization work, especially for those who are harmed. You know, decolonization work for me is going to be a lifetime thing. I'm still traumatized by my childhood. So I have to make sure that even with me, I am continually um, decolonizing so I'm not perpetuating white supremacy in the work that I do or in my speech or in my yoga classes or in my workshops or just in life in general. I don't want to uphold white supremacy standards, but that doesn't mean that I won't accidentally. It just means that my, my intention right. is to make sure that I am uplifting the voices of people of color. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to make a mistake personally, right? Sure. And so that is is the exact same for white people who are stepping into this work is to understand that, you know, you don't need to be the leader or the expert in everything. <laughs> um, right. And you really shouldn't be in this work. What you can do is do things like this, provide a free podcast where you are inviting people of color to have this conversation around the work that they do so that they can continue to have access and they, their work can be sustainable for themselves um, while they are educating the public. Um, so, Check. you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that doesn't center you in any way, right? Like, and it also doesn't really cost you much of anything except time. And mm -hmm. I think for a lot of people, even that concept is like, wait, what? You want me to give my time for free? Like, mm -hmm. Who are you, right? So a lot of people have this entitlement of, no, if I'm going to do something, I'm not doing it for free. I'm I'm going to do something and get compensated for it, or I'm going to get some profit off of it. And that, again, is the world that we've lived in. It, and, this world has... society, right? It's society, right? Like, it's white supremacy. It's colonialism. It's all of these things that have been taught to us from the get-go, from the jump. 
soon as we were born, we were told white is right. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's what you should aspire to be. And there, and that entitlement also shows up in anti-racism work and social justice work. So another way that you can decenter yourself is to go to and support Black Lives Matter, for instance, but mm -hmm. don't take selfies there. Don't let anybody know you're even there, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't, you don't have to constantly center yourself as like, you know, this uh, ally who is always showing up for people of color, whose boyfriend is black and whose friends are Latino and who has Asian, you know, bosses and like, they're not racist, right? They're showing up in the streets just like everybody else. But really, if you think about it, being an ally for the most part, if that even goes unchecked, is really all about you. It's mm -hmm. all about you being the good white person. It's all about you being the good white savior. It has nothing to do with the cause. So, you know, take a minute and be like, okay, I'm going to show up to this Black Lives Matter rally and really, truly be in support. I'm not going to take one selfie. All my pictures are going to be of the people. They're going to be of the speakers. They're going to be of the leaders. I'm going to share, you know, links of their work. And I'm not going to talk about myself at all and see how that goes see how that feels right like it's gonna feel a little bit challenging like wait <laughs> really like i can't talk about myself at all yeah don't talk <laughs> about yourself at all right like try it right. just give it a shot um so those are just a few of the ways and a lot of the work that i do is on racial equity so how do you create equity for a person of color doing any type of work it doesn't have to be anti-racism it could literally be like a doula um mm -hmm or, you know, a scientist or, you know, whatever work that they might be doing, um, you know, it could be a florist or whatever, but creating racial equity so they can start to have access um, to things that, you know, society would otherwise deny them of. And, and I go into full examples of what that looks like as a white person not centering themselves in that process. So what does it look like to broaden the yoga community and practice mm -hmm. so that it is more accessible for people? I was looking at actually the woman who is on the cover of what is the yoga magazine? Yoga journal. Yoga journal. So on mm -hmm. the cover is Nicole Cardoza. Yep who I was not familiar with until a couple of days ago, because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I really haven't been connected into the community. Um, yeah. But reading her story of the work that she's doing to bring this practice into schools and low income areas, like it's so amazing. And yeah. so how do I mean, obviously, her story is a tremendous example that may not be something everybody can do. Right. But what are some yeah. practical steps people can take? to make yoga more accessible? Yeah, I think, you know, I know Nicole, um, she and I correspond on Instagram often. And what happened to her, and I, I don't know that um, your listeners will know, but essentially what happened with her in Yoga Journal was that um, Yoga Journal decided to um, do a split cover. So before they shot Nicole, the cover of their magazine and to do an entire story around the work that she's doing with Yoga Foster, which is her work in schools, bringing yoga to the schools and to children. And then her other business, uh, which is, I believe, a nonprofit where she raises money and funding 
to provide scholarships, wellness scholarships for people of color who have businesses and are entrepreneurs so that they can continue to expand their lives and their businesses and have access. Um, so both of those things are amazing. And Yoga Journal uh, approached her to be on the cover and talk about her work. But what ended up happening after that photo shoot is that they decided to do a an, what's called an A-B testing in the marketing world. So what that is, is you do two posts or two cover images that are different than each other, but have um, similar content or context. And then you let your audience decide which one they prefer. So what it's meant to do is tell you and give you some analytics and some data as to like, what do people prefer? Um, what will they actually buy and purchase and go for? On paper, that sounds fine. Wow. But when you're talking about people, right? And when you're talking about race, um, it's highly problematic. So what happened was, they um, presented their audience with a, um, an image of her on the cover, Nicole, who is a black woman. And they contrasted that with an image of a white woman who was wearing a like a, a rainbow jacket. So it was meant to show like LGBTQ. And um, and that's all. That's all they had. So they gave their audience pick the black woman or pick the white woman. And that is incredibly racist. That is highly problematic. People are going to choose things through bias rather than education or level of understanding. So when Nicole saw that that happened to her and that the magazine was doing that to her, she decided to go public with it. And then, of course, there was a big public outcry about it. And so I just wanted to give that context to people to, to see, you know, these are incredibly these we are led by companies who are problematic and they will do problematic things even when they are trying to be diverse, because, again, this is lifetime work. And I know for a fact that Yoga Journal has no diversity and inclusion team within their um within their company, and they have never hired a, a, um, a, an anti-racism trainer. I know this because I spoke to them about, you know, possibly doing work with them, and, you know, they have yet to provide an answer to me. So, that is um, so interesting. And I yeah. do recall hearing this story. I didn't connect yeah. who it was, um, but, yeah, I remember seeing something about it. It was a couple of months ago, yeah? Yeah, it was about a month and a half ago, two months ago. Okay. And, um, but it's not the first time that they've done it. And it's not the first time they've been called out for it. Amazing. Um, yeah, they did the exact same thing to another black woman um, earlier this year in January or February, sometime around then. So it's, you know, it's, it's perpetuating these systems of oppression. And they they refuse to learn. And so, um, so I just wanted to give that context too. But yeah. What I really wanted to say is, you know, the fact that Nicole is taking this work on, right? She's bringing yoga to the school. She's um, providing scholarships to people of color and entrepreneurs so that they can have access to wellness or that they can continue providing wellness to the community. This is a Black woman who has taken it upon herself to uplift her community um, mm -hmm. by herself. You know, and so what white people can do is support her, give right. her the money, provide her the spaces, send, you know, yoga mats um, to the school, to her so that she can provide them to the children at the schools. Be be an actual ally and an actual accomplice 
And again, not make it about you. Make an anonymous donation. Make sure that your money is not, or that your name is not attached to your money that you're giving, right? Like do something, do something for a person of color that is completely unattached to your ego. That if nothing ever happened, if you never got praise for it, it wouldn't matter, right? Like you are not attached to having any sort of praise or being attached to any sort of credit for doing, for providing access to someone. Um, that is a fantastic way, right? So um, there are plenty of uh, people of color within the yoga uh, community that are providing uh, retreats for specifically for people of color. Um, give your money so that they can provide a free scholarship to a woman of color or a person of color who might not otherwise be able to afford a retreat. You know, retreats are incredibly expensive. Right. Um, if you have privilege and access, do that for them without any attachment to anything in return. Um, another thing that you can do is talk to your yoga studios, um, to the owners, to the studio managers, talk to them and have them and actually demand that they bring in, you know, a person of color's work to the studio. So for instance, a workshop or yeah. a training, yeah. or, you know, if there's a panel or, um, if there's a conference and you notice that that community needs more diversity um, and they're not very inclusive, demand that the studio um, take it upon themselves to bring pe more people of color, more leaders of color to the spaces and do trainings, do workshops, even if it's like a handstand workshop, uh, you know, even if it's asana focused or physically focused, we need to diversify and decolonize our spaces. And that, um, and a very easy and free thing that you can do is just send an email to your studio and tell them, hey, go to this website. This woman is doing amazing work or this man is doing amazing work. I think we need more diversity and inclusion in our space. I would love to pay and see this person's workshop in our community and demand it. If they tell you, yeah, that sounds good. We'll look into it follow up and right. make sure that they actually do it. Cause that's another thing is like, people are like, Oh yeah, I told my studio owner about it, but nothing ever happened. Well, are you committed to doing this work or not? Like make sure that you're following up. And if they tell you something that's problematic, like, Oh, you know, that's not what we focus on or yeah, we're interested in the topic, but not this teacher, which I have been told many times by white studio owners that they are interested in social justice, but they're not interested in me teaching it, which is completely racist, mm. um, then, you know, make sure that you're following up with that studio owner or that manager and demanding that they bring in that this is important and that you want them to bring in the, this person or these people, or you want a, a panel that is nothing but people of color, like actually be committed to that rather than just kind of idly mentioning it and then maybe it happens maybe it doesn't like really truly be committed to doing this work and being supportive of people of color um that is something that you can do if you don't have the money to give to a scholarship fund or anything like that um another way that you can create access uh for people of color if you do own a yoga studio is to provide scholarships or some sort of sliding scale so that people who may not have the money to you know pay to attend classes or studios or anything like that um 
so that they are able to have some sort of access uh, and reduce the barrier to entry. So that's another way, but make sure yeah. that if you do that, that you do have a diverse staff. Because the last thing you want to do is bring people of color into your studio and then they come in and, and it's a problematic environment for for them and mm. then they never come back, right? Like right. or they, they do come back because they don't they don't have any other spaces that they can afford or go to, um, and you're just perpetuating more and more and more harm. So make sure you are doing the work of diversifying your environment first and making it truly inclusive and then provide that sliding scale and that scholarship option so that people of color who don't have a lot of access or privilege or money, they can still attend um, and, and get healing practices from their own people, you know, from black, brown, indigenous people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another thing that you can do if you are providing a space or you are a space holder, make sure that you're diversifying your space first and then providing that. But I also want to state, because this is a very popular thing to talk about scholarships and funding, um, but some people think that that automatically means that all people of color are poor. Right. That's also not the case. Right. <laughs> so I want to make sure that people understand, like, people of color are not a monolith. We are not all the same. We right. do not have the same, you know, um, uh, barriers to entry. Like, there are very affluent people of color as well. So there's that to note. But there are also predominantly, most of the time, people like myself who grew up in poverty or who have had a very hard time, um, you know, coming up uh, with privilege or a lack of privilege. And these are people who absolutely need healing just like anybody else. Um, So, you know, make sure that you're not stereotyping people of color, but that you are providing at least some barrier uh, or that you're reducing barriers to entry for people of color who may not have the access. Well, we have come to about an hour and 10 minutes here. (laughs) So I would love for you to tell us where we can find you and and, and what services you offer. Absolutely. So I am on Instagram often on a daily basis. I provide free examples and education and, um, you know, a lot of my work is uh, posted on there. So people can find me at eliana.shanea. Um, and I'm sure in you'll have show notes that will have the right spelling. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can go to my website, embodyinclusivity.com. That also has a lot of information on my programs, um, my courses, and my workshops that I do in person. Um and yeah, that's about it. I do have a, uh, like I mentioned, a course uh, group program that is starting very soon that I have one last spot available for. So if anybody is listening and there's still time <laughs> um, and I haven't closed it, then they can reach out to me through my website um, and let me know if they are interested and we can have a conversation if you're the right person to be a part of the program. Um, but yeah, it's embodyinclusivity.com or on Instagram at eliana.shanea. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to me. 